Welcome to Season 6 of the Engineering Education Research Briefs Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ruth Streveler, Professor of Engineering Education at Purdue University. This is my final season as host of this podcast. In May 2023, I will retire from Purdue University and begin a new phase of my life and career. Visit my LinkedIn page to find updates about me and about research briefs. Research Briefs is focused on people who create new frameworks and new methods in engineering education research. In past episodes, we've spoken with researchers when they already had a finished product, say a framework or a method that they were willing to discuss. What we wanted to do with this episode was talk about a new framework that was still in process. What we wanted to do here was share what it was like when one is in the middle of developing something new. This episode is a 2021 conversation between me, Ruth Streveler, and Dr. Emily Dringenberg, Assistant Professor of Engineering Education at The Ohio State University. You've heard Emily before, most recently on a fascinating episode on smartness from summer of 2022. And the framework we're discussing is called a socially embedded framework for learning. At the end of this episode, I'll provide an update on this framework. Emily and I uh, both have similar interests about beliefs and learning and um, implicit learning, particularly the things that we're not that conscious of. Yes, and I think that part of the conversation also, I was listening to one of your recent episodes with Chanel Beebe and this idea of trying to articulate things that are still sort of in the works, because I think that, Ruth, you and I both benefit a lot from our conversations because they just help us continue our thinking, right, and continue mm-hmm. the questions we're asking, and that it's kind of the, you know, behind the scenes work of the grants we get funded or the papers we write, I, I have, have taken a lot from these conversations as like sort of the true place in which some of these um, curiosities come to life. Um, so yeah, we'll see where it takes us. One of the things too, as you were talking, I was thinking about Emily, is that one of the things that's really wonderful about the conversations you and I have is that we both really trust each other not to go what the hell are you thinking? How come you aren't as articulate? What do you mean you don't have that figured out yet? So that we're safe with sharing that with each other. And the thing that is so much more intimidating about this particular conversation is that we're going to put it out there for other people to hear. Um, and so when we were preparing for this, I was was telling you, oh, you know, this is really scary. And you're saying, why should you be scared? You're a full professor. (laughs) It's like, well, because it's scary. What will people think? Um, And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of these kinds of conversations aren't shared more regularly, because it it makes someone really vulnerable. Um, But 
if we don't ever share them, people won't have a sense of what that messy middle looks like. You know, they they only see the end product. Um, and so, we, you know, we have this great new idea that's always like this huge dopamine hit and it's really exciting. And then, then there's the end product, which might happen like, you know, there's people that have spent 10 years working on an idea or maybe more than that. Um, I was just talking with, with Mickey Chi lately, and I know that she first started writing about the idea of ontologies in 1992. So that's almost 30 years ago. Um, but, you know, we see these end ideas, like we see Mickey Chi writes these amazing papers that are, you know, 60 pages long and win awards and all of that. And um, that's what we see. And then we experience that wonderful hit of dopamine you get when you first get the idea. But, you know, what's happening in those 30 years that she's developing stuff, people don't see that. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I remember you were on my committee when I was a student at Purdue. And I remember I would be, I don't know what I'm doing. And you said, look at the sign, Emily, that you had in your office that said something about if, it, if we knew what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. Mm-hmm. Well, I say that to my students now too, and to myself. Um, and I think it was my first year in at Ohio State four years ago that you came to campus and we were talking about thinking fast and slow. And we were talking about fMRIs. And so even just some of these ideas are, you know, years in the making just to get to the point that we have enough of a solid idea to try to talk about it. Right. Uh, right. Proposal. So, yeah. yeah. So thanks for being willing to do this since this is one of your big ideas that we're going to kind of explore today. Um, do you want to kind of give us a highlight of what that idea is? And then we'll talk about how you're making sense of it. Sure. So um, I was on sabbatical in four, a fall of 2020. And uh, my idea was to relook at learning. And I was just paging through a notebook that I call my academic notebook right before we started our conversation. And I saw that in about September 2019, I had said that my department head had just given me the thumbs up for starting the application process for sabbatical in fall of 2020. And so I needed to begin writing a kind of a little justification of what I was going to do. And my thought at that point was that I was going to study how implicit learning works in conceptual change and how you might measure it. So that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, I wanted to switch from this cognitive model of conceptual change where, you know, you kind of reason your way through why one theory is a better explanation of a phenomenon than another theory um, and to help people release their hold on the way they've been looking at things and, and 
look at something in a different way. Um, so all of the theories up until that point had been, you know, through reason, you just show evidence, 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 and that convince people that they're wrong and you're right. And that's the, that's the magic wand. Um, but um, as you were mentioning the, the book, Thinking Fast and Slow with uh, Daniel Kahneman, that talks a lot about implicit learning and, um, you know, I've been very engaged with that actually since my first sabbatical. And so I thought, yes, that's what I'm going to bring into this. So I was going to go from just looking at the head kind of to looking at the whole body. And I started reading things about um, embodied learning, particularly starting out with um, a book called The Embodied Mind um, that has just kind of gone through. It's like this maybe something like its 21st, 25th anniversary edition. Uh, it came out in the early 90s, maybe 91. Um, so actually, it's 30 years now. Um, as we're talking in 2021. Um, and so I started reading about that and I had this little graphic of um, the going from the head to the whole body uh, and beginning to look at that. And I was relieved to find that there was um, a methodology that kind of went along with that, and that was phenomenology, um, and that that already had been explained through a philosophical tradition, so which I guess like methodologies have to have a ph philosophical tradition behind them. So I thought, cool, I don't have to create this. There's this coherence. So I started racking up the books about um, phenomenology, and um, that's where I was going to go. And then I thought, um, you know, I really should also read again, Thinking Fast and Slow. And in a way to kind of get me charged up for that or in conjunction with that, I don't remember the flow of that now. I was listening to an old episode of one of our, both of your and my favorite podcasts called The Hidden Brain. Uh, with Shankar Vidantam, and he had Daniel Kahneman as one of his guests. And they were actually talking about um, climate change at the time, and Shankar was asking Danny, as everybody apparently calls Kahneman, um, how come evidence isn't working to help people convince people that climate change is happening. And Kahneman said that evidence isn't that important, that what is important is that we believe the people we love and trust. Mm -hmm. And that really just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, trust. Wow. Trust is important. It's not logic it's it's trust um and so i began to de develop this idea that 
I was at first calling conceptual trust. And I remember, um, I think it was in September 2020, talking with a group of my conceptual change buddies, um, like Shane Brown and Devlin Montfort and Holly Matasovich and Jeffrey Herman and just saying conceptual trust, this is a thing. And, and it kind of resonated with them. And we started talking a bit about trust and how do you develop trust? And Jeffrey was telling me uh, about trust in business and some people that were talking about that. And I was going to follow up with that. So with the idea of trust, then that expanded the idea both to emotion and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really didn't, I, I didn't see how that was going to be. I didn't know how that was going to happen. Um, because that whole idea of the other people, the social aspects of it, I, I didn't see really how it fit yet. And one of the things maybe we could weave in to this is a conversation that you and I've been having for quite a while, going back to your idea about beliefs. And one question we asked ourselves, I don't know if this is maybe a couple of years ago mm-hmm. already, why are beliefs so angry? And why is it that when we have beliefs and we come upon a person who has an opposing belief, we get so riled up about it? Um, Just the other day, I was in the supermarket and I saw this guy with this T-shirt about the Second Amendment and Homeland Security. And I just started developing these thoughts about who this guy was. And did I want to go find his car and ram it with my car, you know, or sometimes I'll see a bumper sticker that I don't like. And I, I have this sense that I'm going to ram it, my car with their car, you know, with my car. And it's like, why is that? Um, and, you know, you and I have been, been reading then about group membership and how we're, we have such allegiance to our groups. And when we find another person from uh, another group, we, we just often have this strong reaction. Um, so another area kind of came into this equation, another uh, strand of thought. And I I was talking to my buddy, Carl Smith, and I don't even remember exactly what we were talking about, but he, Carl always reads everything and always has great ideas about what to read next. And he was talking about the evolutionary biologist, uh, E.O. Wilson. And um, while looking up the book that he was talking to me about, I found another book, a recent book of his, that talked about the deep origin of society. Um, The book actually is entitled Genesis. And then the deep origin of society, I believe, is like after the subtitle. 
And um, he spoke about this idea of, of natural selection, which as a biologist and a person who was studying particularly evolutionary biology in my master's degree at The Ohio State University, where you're sitting right now. Um, E.O. Wilson was really uh, an important person at that particular time uh, when I was studying this in the 70s. So he's a person I trust, right? And what he was saying was that natural selection doesn't really work on the unit of a family or your kin, which is what he was saying in the 70s, they call it kin selection, but that it's actually at the level of the group and that it is groups that compete with each other, not really individuals. Groups of humans are competing with each other to see who is the most fit in um, natural selection terms. And often groups and your relatives are the same people in early clans. Usually the group you were with were also people you were related to. But he had other arguments to say that, that, um, that it wasn't always the case. And so I began to think, my goodness, groups are so important in natural selection. No wonder we're so aligned and have such allegiance to our group. And if we are kind of programmed to compete against other groups, no wonder when we encounter other groups, we are so strong in our reaction towards them. Um, there was another reading I had, and it wasn't from Wilson, but I think he would agree with this statement that natural selection um, influences us to strongly cooperate with our own group and compete against other groups. So there's this huge dyna group dynamic happening. So you have at the individual, you, went, you meant to go from mind to body, but then the Kahneman trust is like, hold on, it's not just one body. There's other bodies and minds. But then how does that relate to these like biological theories of groups? Yes. How does that? Um, each group has their sets of norms and beliefs, and they see something as being true. They really they have their own reality, you might say, um, and. One thing that popped up for me as I was beginning to really think about how to explain this, there's a graphic that um, is often used to explain the theory called how people learn. And in it, there's a kind of a, a circle that is considered the community 
or the community centeredness is how they explain it. And then there's these three intersecting circles that are that talk about knowledge centered, assessment centered, and learner centered. And as I was looking at that model, I thought, well, that that holds that model holds if you're all in the same community. And if the community you're in agrees that certain things is not certain things are knowledge and that the learner behaves a particular way and that certain things are valued, but that each community has their own circle and looks at knowledge and values and behavior in different ways. They have their different norms about what is acceptable and they really police those norms. Mm -hmm. So what happens if you have these groups that have these different views of knowledge? And the, the thing that hit me was are we asking people when we want them to change their conceptions about a phenomenon, are we asking them to join a different community? Are we saying you used to believe X about how things worked, but no, now we want you to believe us. And when I tell you this is how it works, you should believe me and be convinced. And that just spurred this ideas about the importance of belonging, um, about power structures between groups, yes. um, about how people navigate through different groups or not, which groups they have access to and which groups they don't. Um, how you view newcomers to a group, just, just this whole realm of things. And it, it made me think that all of that is really an important part of conceptual change. And all we had ever been focusing on is convincing people with evidence mm -hmm. and wondering why they weren't convinced and thinking truthfully that obviously there's some kind of strange person or an idiot, or why aren't they seeing this? Can't they see that this is the way it is? And, um, you know, we pound our heads against the wall, figuring out how to convince people. When the question might be, how do I help people feel like they belong to this community? How can they trust me that I'm telling them the truth? Um, and I remembered back to some discussions I had had in spring of 2020 with a class on neuroscience that I was teaching at the time. And um, 
there were just a few students and we had great conversations and I think we all did trust each other. And I proposed some kind of, I think, wild ideas to them. And they immediately accepted it. And I thought back to it and it was like, was I particularly convincing with my argument? Um, I, I don't think as, as this, uh, this conversation is showing, I, I, I'm not that skilled at having these fabulous, arg, you know, logical arguments that people can follow. But I, I think what was really happening was not that my evidence was so great, but that the students trusted me. And so they were like, yeah, that makes sense. So it has made me think about myself differently as a teacher, that the first thing I should do is be trustworthy. And then like, how do you become trustworthy? Part of it is your group membership. Uh, students might trust you because you're a professor and you're their teacher. Um, but also, I think people trust you if they feel you will honor them and protect them and care for them. Um, and that's a different way than I think we often think about teaching, or at least some people think about teaching. Mm -hmm. It's different than the way I thought about teaching. Not that I didn't care for my students. Not that I don't think I showed them that I cared, but I didn't realize the primacy of it mm -hmm. the way I do now. Yeah, I'm wondering about like, does it start to get a little creepy? Mm -hmm. Like if all I'm doing, it starts to sound almost like brainwashy. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, I'll get you to trust me and then I will get you to believe what I believe. Like, how do you, like, how does taking it in that direction? Do you have thoughts on that? Well, that's exactly what con people do. Mm -hmm. um, they take advantage of the fact that um, they can appear trustworthy. Mm -hmm. There was just a, a podcast about the assassination of the president of Haiti. Mm -hmm. And there's speculation that there's a Haitian American who possibly spurred this. And the, that, that person got other people of very high importance to buy into it. Mm -hmm. And um, 
one of the reporters that was questioning this other person said, you know, how, how, how did he do that? And finally, the person she was, the reporter was interviewing just said, I think he's just a con man and I'm really embarrassed I fell for it. Mm. Um, so, yes, that's exactly, it, it can be used to manipulate and certainly um, people we would call demagogues do that consciously. Um, it might be happening as we speak. So do we need to be demagogues? I, I would hope not. Well, I also really like a lot of our conversations, like as you've expanded your model, and you mentioned this earlier, like all of this brings to the front, like power and privilege and who is assumed trustworthy, right? Like as white people, as people with PhD behind our name, those sorts of things. And and again, this sort of, especially an engineering idea that it's somehow apolitical and it's just knowledge and it's scientific and it's objective. I think, you know, the ideas you're bringing forward help me to really, like, it just gets harder and harder to see. Maybe I just believe the people I, maybe I just believe you, Ruth, because I trust you. But I, right, but like that starts to, your model helps to bring in how that's just such a part of knowledge. You know, we've even said like, should we just say that knowledge equals belief? Right. And I think we both are like, ooh, there might be a lot of resistance in the scientific community right? That no, no, knowledge is facts and belief is like your religion or your whatever versus our belief and our trust in science. Right. I think this blurs those lines, right? Of like all, and it also just like explodes the complexity. Yes. Which is what makes it so hard to neatly write about or neatly theorize. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, The thought that we, you know, that science is a culture that I believe versus science is the truth is a very um, unsettling thing. Um, I'm unsettled by it. And even I notice as I've been explaining this, I really trust Daniel Kahneman. And I tell everybody, Nobel Prize winning Daniel Kahneman, because obviously if he was smart enough to win a Nobel Prize, he's right. Um, and that was one of the things, too, about listening to the podcast and hearing him say that it was like, whoa, I really I really trust him. That's one of the reasons that knocked me off my feet. And then the other big person I'm bringing in, E.O. Wilson, who coming back 
full circle from when I was getting my master's degree, um, you know, over 40 years ago. It's like, oh, well, you know, he's the top person when it comes to evolutionary psychology or evolutionary biology, um, I should say. Um, so obviously, if he's saying that it's group selection, we are we we are now in in some ways uh, acted upon by natural selection to have such allegiance to our groups and such suspicion of other groups. And the moment anything starts to go wrong, we start to blame other groups um, for even random things or things that those groups had nothing to do with. Um, and, and history is absolutely rife with those examples. Um, again, not only in the past, but in our, our present as well. I remember one of my um, PhD advisor, uh, advisees was telling me that uh, when you're talking about um, kind of privilege, that in the country that she was from, you would never, ever deviate from the sequence that a textbook was written in, that if you were teaching from a particular textbook, you would teach in the order of the chapters, you would never skip chapters, you wouldn't um, disagree. Um, and well, how were you to know better than the author of the textbook? And the textbook authors usually were either British or American. Mm. Um, and this, this country she was from had been, a, a, been colonized um, up until the 20th century. And, you know, that was still very much there. And I notice as I've traveled places internationally, you know, there are places that still they want a person to come in from the U.S. or England. Oh, you're from the U.S.? Oh, you're from Purdue? Oh, you're, you're special. And you must be our keynote speaker. Um, which is kind of nice, I guess, if you're an American professor, you know, you get asked to go places and speak, but then you look it's like it's, it's uncomfortable as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the model, I'm calling it right now, um, a socially embedded learning framework, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or S-E-L-F. Um, I used to call it socially embedded framework for learning, S-E-F-L. Uh, -E and I'm like, why am, I, why am I doing it that way? That's not a word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, I was intrigued that you said, so how I've evolved in what I'm thinking about to make 
what I know to be true and how I learn include these social dynamics and in-group, out-group, you said, you know, this is what I think it means for my teaching. So I have to earn trust if I'm going to do anything. It's not actually about presenting a coherent argument or evidence or whatever. Um, what do you think about like more broadly, whether it's engineering education or higher education, like how would it look different if instead of this idea of like in people's brains, they're rationally learning and committing to ideas to we're all navigating these complex social dynamics as one way to articulate your model. Like how do you, what ideas do you have about how things would look different if we, if this was our framework? So a couple examples I have thought about um, are the, what I think is the usual kind of outreach. I'm, I'm going to, I'll go to engineering since I, I know that the best. Um, and what I see again and again as students in my class are designing other courses, and if they're designing outreach, they have a very similar structure usually of you want to outreach to a community. So you go and you tell them about the design process and you tell them about how fun engineering is. And you may tell them about the um, financial security that um, an engineering career can bring you. But the general thrust is we're really cool. Don't you want to be like us? Mm -hmm. And I'm contrasting this with a couple of examples that I know from actually two other podcast guests. Uh, one was um, Sean Jordan at Arizona State, who now works with Native American communities. Um, and he was looking at using a Native American structure for storytelling to talk about engineering. And so he would, again, he would have Native American engineers come and talk to, I think it was mainly like middle school students who were indigenous, had indigenous ancestry. And the students then would not just like listen to the story and say, oh, I want to be like person X, I want to be like Henry or whatever. They would incorporate themselves into the story and tell it as if they would tell the story of this person incorporating their own story into it and fusing the two. And they were beginning to see themselves then, this is my hypothesis, see themselves as this person. So it's no longer, I want to be like this person, but I am this person. So if you think of group membership, it's not saying, don't you want to join 
the group of engineers, but you are in this group already. Um, another example comes from um, James Holly, who has been a podcast uh, guest a couple of times. And James has worked with particularly Black urban boys and worked with them on how basketball actually exemplifies engineering thinking. So he's taking this thing, basketball, which often these students really, really like, maybe even are obsessed by, and saying, wow, this is engineering. So again, this thing that you already are interested in, that you love, is actually engineering. You don't have to become something. <clears throat> you already are something. I've never heard you describe it in that way. And it's reminding me of like culturally relevant pedagogy. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. One of my own teaching practices differently. Um, students really do often say that this different model of looking at curriculum design that I teach, that it really um, stays with them and impacts them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I think that reason is that is so is that students are asked to choose some a, a course to redesign that is first of all their own choosing but then i also say please have it be something you're really interested in that you think will be useful to you to do and so it's they get to choose something that's really close to their heart. And they then take this new different way of looking at curriculum design and apply it to this thing that is close to their heart. And as I am giving them feedback on it, I, of course, am honest with them when they're doing something that is, is not aligned with the model. But also, I really validate their idea. And I've really come to think that that might be a very critical piece in why that model stays with them for so long and really impacts them. And they often say that it was pleasurable and a really good class or a really useful class. And um. I think that that's a really important thing. Yeah, you know, in this moment, it resonates with me as I continue to participate in engineering education. And I know you going all the way back with your RREE, right? This idea of who is in the group and who is not. And if you're a, you know, capstone educator and you want to survey some students in your class, it's not really research. I mean, that same sort of dynamic, right? I know right. 
other groups, you know, and this idea that you, you gotta, you know, meet people where they are and this sort of thing. But I think to bring it back, it's like, I can just see so many examples of how we do that. Right. That right. all of these things are actually just us positioning. Yes. Higher group. It's never just one group and the other group. It's which group is more, has more status. Right? Yes. Yes. And engineers get a lot of status and researchers, you know, faculty get a lot of status. Um, so yeah, I just see that come up over and over. Of, even if I think about my own life, right. And the ways in which I've been um, so guilty of perpetuating that, that what counts as knowledge. I mean, I do it now. I teach a research design class, right. And it's the same kind of thing. Um, of finding perhaps these things are paradoxical though, right? Like it's both. There is right. more alignment and there's also value in your idea. And how do you do both if it's no longer the objective truth that I convince you of, but it's us in a social, you know, setting, navigating what counts. Right. Hmm. Right. Okay, so Ruth, you're giving me like a lot of great ideas, even though we've been talking about this for years, there's always more things to explore. So thinking about this as sort of a work in progress, a journey that you've been on to revise and resituate your model. Um, do you have some takeaways or advice? This is how you often end your podcast for mm -hmm. listeners of this process or the messiness or, or, or what, what would you offer as some of the takeaways from this journey you've been on? So um, one thing that I know that has really been useful is talking to people and forcing myself to put words onto what my thoughts are. Also, making graphics has been really useful. And then I had this very linear idea of how I was going to read and what I was going to look at when I was starting my sabbatical. And then these other kind of flickers of intuition, my ADD-ness, I guess, kind of kept popping in. And as I look back, if I had not allowed myself to take those little side trips to you know, explore here and there with something that didn't seem like it had much connection, um, I would not have ended up where I ended up. So I guess one of, I guess it would be takeaway and advice is to um, allow yourself to pursue your interests. And um, you do have to have ways to pull yourself back and Talking to people can do that. Making a graphic can be doing that of a way of kind of saying, how did these different threads start to integrate with each other? Those would be some takeaways I have as I look back at this process of like the last couple of years of, of beginning to form this. Yeah, and I know you've mentioned the discomfort, right, of as those things are coming together. So thank you for being willing to share, even though it feels like it's not the perfect, um, you know, perfect description yet. Um, so I think being a little selfish, I have a, one more question I'd like to ask. You know, my research group is focused on studying beliefs 
And we still grapple regularly with these big questions of like, well, what is a belief? Like, where do beliefs exist? Like, how do we measure a belief? Where do they come from? These are very big foundational questions you would think you would need to know to study these things. And I'm just six years out of my PhD. So I feel like I'm still laying the groundwork. Um, I'm curious for someone like you closer to the end of your career, like how does it feel to still have these big ahas or reframings um, as a part of being a researcher? So one thing that I will bring to mind is I think the last time you and I talked, I was telling you how scared I was about this, about the thought about having a podcast of, of sharing this. Mm-hmm. And you said, well, if you can't say it, and if you can't say it now, who can say it and when could they say it? And that keeps popping through my head. Like, if I can't say this now, when will I ever be able to say it? Um, and that has given me courage to stumble my way through things. But it's still stumbling and it's still scary and it's still things that I don't want to share with a a wider world and have everybody see how, how badly I stumble. Um, Again, perhaps it, you know, going back to this idea of power and privilege, you know, we, we all want to keep our, the illusions that we have it all together um, there, even though we know that that's not the case. And, you know, I think for myself, I, there's nothing I love more than a good idea. So when I get like these aha kinds of moments, it really is a huge dopamine rush. I'm just like flying. I'm in the best mood ever. And then comes the, what is this really? And that is really uncomfortable. And the more I see an idea that I have that I think goes against the accepted um, way of looking at things, like there's really not much difference between knowledge and belief, for example. I know you and I both kind of have been using that as a, um, as, as kind of the assumption that we're now making. Um, when you think something like that, it's both like really, it's like you feel like you're the smartest person in the world for going against the grain, but you also realize that you're going against the grain and there's something in the air about the group norm that is always there with you that ma- that makes it uncomfortable so there's this this dueling feeling of this is so cool i can't even stand how cool this is and this is not people aren't going to like this Um, so it's, and I guess it depends which of those feelings has, uh, 
predominance in your your body at any particular time of like, wow, this is really cool. I guess I'll do this to, oh, I think I just want to shut up. Mm-hmm. And also for people that are like yourself that are, you know, as you said, six, six years out, um, you might not have seen many examples of what the middle looks like or feels like. And so you just see the end paper, the end product of, you know, people do the Ted talk and it, it like sounds so fabulous or they've got the bestseller book like Gladwell or thinking fast and slow. And, you know, Kahneman has the, the Nobel prize now. So you see the end and, and you might have the sense of how exciting the beginning is, but that middle isn't there. And so you, you think there's something wrong with you. If you're stumbling with you, if you're having doubts, um, um, this is the time of year where students are doing their preliminary exams and they're looking at their dissertation proposals. And as I'm going through this with students, they I can see they're like, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Is this okay? You want to get it right. And you don't know what's right at this point. It's all being formed. Um, it's just a, it's an uncomfortable place to be. But as researchers, we're probably saying that that dopamine hit of having a new idea and figuring something out is strong in us, or we wouldn't be doing this. And um, so we're we, we're still propelled, but we we still have those doubts. Awesome. Well, I know I still do look forward to seeing your opinion piece when it comes out about your model when it is that final thing. Um, And thanks for sharing some of those initial aha moments as well as sort of the messy middle space of still trying to iron things out. It's always a pleasure. Well, Emily, thank you. Um, You're a very important colleague to me because you are safe. Uh, And I know I can trust you. So thank you for being a trustworthy and uh, wise and knowledgeable person. (laughs) (laughs) We all need those friendships, don't we? We do. As we said at the beginning of this episode, this conversation took place in 2021. After more thought and a couple of rounds of review and revision, an opinion piece about this framework entitled Lessons from the Misinformation Age Proposing a Socially Embedded Approach to Fostering Conceptual Change has been published in Advances in Engineering Education, Volume 10, Issue 3. The Engineering Education Research Briefs podcast is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. Original theme music is composed and performed by Patrick Vogt.